Isn't that nice, peaceful music as we're honoring God? Well, I'm blessed to be with you this morning. And this morning, we're going to begin what's going to end up being a several-month intermittent series on life in the kingdom of God. We're going to cover a number of different topics. We're going to cover marriage in the kingdom of God. We're going to cover finances in the kingdom of God. We're going to cover all kinds of different areas to see what God's wisdom is on certain subjects. And we're going to start off with prosperity in the kingdom of God, and that'll be this Sunday and next Sunday. And as I was preparing for this, it's a pretty broad subject. And I was praying and looking to God, how do I approach this? And that's where he just showed me to approach it, and that's what started this whole series, to look at the difference between the wisdom of this world and the kingdoms of this world and the wisdom of God and the kingdom of God. So wealth and prosperity in the kingdom of God is what pertains today to us in the church. Whereas there is wealth and prosperity in the world, and unfortunately the world is ultimately controlled by Satan. So wealth and prosperity in the world is a somewhat more difficult proposition. But I want to start by showing you about these two kingdoms. Everybody who has ever been a Christian became a Christian the exact same way. At one point in your life, you had heard enough where you decided that Jesus was indeed going to be your Lord. Not just the Lord, but your Lord. And you believed that God raised him from the dead. And once you did that, many great things occurred. And two of the great things that occurred have to do with your passport. So let's take a look at Colossians chapter 1. Talking about our system here. In Colossians 1 verse 13, it says, For he, referring to God, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So when you became a Christian, you were transferred, moved into a new kingdom. As you might expect, this was a definitive upgrade. But you might not realize just what an upgrade it was. So I want to give you an example. Imagine if you had been raised in North Korea, always afraid of the knock on the door in the night. You'd been raised in North Korea, and one night someone came and rescued you, got you out of North Korea, and brought you to the United States. Now, when that happened, a lot of things would immediately be better. However, when you first arrived in the United States, you would be what we call a refugee. You would not be a citizen of the United States, but you would be in the United States, which was a great upgrade from living in North Korea. But with God, it gets better still. Not only have we been transferred into the kingdom of his dear son, we have been given a status within that kingdom. And it's not the status of a refugee. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven. It doesn't say our status is in heaven. It doesn't say our location is in heaven. It doesn't say our green card is from heaven. It says our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we wait or await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not a refugee 
in the kingdom of God. Now, that would be good. I would much rather be a refugee in the kingdom of God than a citizen of the domain of darkness. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yes. So, great upgrade. But that's not who you are. You have been made a citizen of heaven. And, of course, we could go further than that. Not only are you a citizen of heaven, you are a child of God. It just keeps getting better and better. But we need to learn the truths that surround and inform our new kingdom citizenship because they're different standards, they're different truths than the ones we were raised with when we were raised under what the Bible just called the domain of darkness. Before we came to Christ, all of us tried to navigate life as well as we could. We did the best within our power to achieve some modicum of peace, prosperity, and success, but it was always within what we now know to be a domain of darkness. That's why it was difficult. Now you know why it was difficult. And there are some dramatic differences between the standards that govern the kingdom of this world, which is ultimately run by Satan, and the standards of the kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ is the king of that particular kingdom. Among some of the changes are, in the kingdom of God, you humble yourself to be exalted. In the kingdom of God, you serve others in order to lead. And in the kingdom of God, you give in order to be blessed back abundantly. For the most part, the truths and standards of the kingdom of God are pretty much the opposite of the truths and standards that we grew up with in the kingdom of, or the domain of darkness. And there's a reason for that. Isaiah touches upon what that reason is. Isaiah 55, we'll look at verse 8. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God doesn't think like me. He thinks way better. His thoughts are so beyond, his love, his truth is so beyond what I could ever come up with that when I first encounter his truth, it is strange to me because nobody, lives, nobody lived like that in the world I grew up in. But that's how we can live in the kingdom of God. The wisdom of this world, by the way, laughs at the wisdom of God. But God's wisdom still holds true. God shows us why we should follow his wisdom. Because you might think, okay, here's two different wisdoms. Which one should I follow? I could flip a coin. That would be one way to figure it out. But what God actually says is he presents his wisdom and he encourages us, as we're going to see, to try it out, to see if it works. And you know what? If God's word doesn't work, go back to whatever you want. But we're going to look at what God's word says and then we're going to endeavor to go about it. So... By the way, these two kingdoms, not only do they have different sets of wisdom, they have completely different goals. So Jesus Christ laid this out pretty clearly. He said, the thief doesn't come except to steal, kill, and destroy, but he, Jesus Christ, has come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. So when it comes to financial prosperity, when we've been following the wisdom of this world, we have been taking financial advice from a thief. Now, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. Now, I want to show you 
This is not new, by the way. The Jews did this regularly, if you read the Old Testament. I want to show you a few verses from the book of Haggai. That might be a book you don't read all that often. It's one of these books that's about a page and a half in the Old Testament. It gets lost somewhere between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But it has some great truths. And during the time of Haggai, who was a prophet, the children of Israel had once again stopped honoring God and following his ways. Here's what happened to their life. And God is just going to lay it out before them. Haggai chapter 1, verse 5 says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Think about what's going on in your life. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. What a great example. Well, that sounded like my life. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Here's what my ways have gotten me. This is what God is saying. Here's where your ways have gotten you. Why don't you consider them? And consider something that might be better, which is God's ways. They had been going about their life their own way. And as God correctly points out, it was hard. So we want to go about life God's way. So we're going to start by looking at some basic truths in God's word about financial prosperity, wealth and prosperity. 3 John chapter 1, actually there's only one chapter in 3 John. Verse 2, it says, Beloved. I think you just stop right there. That's how God talks to you. That's who you are to him. It doesn't start out like, hey, you. No, it's beloved. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. What this, actually, this is a different version than I thought I was reading. Here, let me read this to you from this one. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper. In all respects you may prosper. And when God says prosper here, another synonym for prosper would be succeed. You know, sometimes Christians feel it's selfish to pray for success. What do you want to pray for? Failure? That doesn't make any sense. Of course, God wants you to succeed. Do you want your children to succeed? David, do you want Layla to succeed? Absolutely. He wants his kids to to succeed. God wants his children to succeed. Many have the idea that to be really spiritual in life, you need to suffer. You need to be poor and sick. If being sick brought you closer to God, why did Jesus walk around Israel healing people? I mean, what what was his purpose? To get people away from God? No. No. God wants you healthy. God wants you successful. How do we receive this promise? See, this is a great promise. But many times we read the great promise and we say, hey, isn't this wonderful? God wants me to succeed. God wants me healthy. But we don't continue to look at his word to see how that promise is received, how that prayer is going to be answered. So let's start building what God has to say about prosperity within his kingdom. Because you see, God's kingdom is not on the earth yet, except where you are. You know that the Bible calls us ambassadors, right? We send ambassadors to foreign countries, right? 
We don't send amba- the American amba- We don't have an American ambassador to America. Okay? We send ambassadors to foreign countries. And here's something interesting about embassies and ambassadors. That when, when our embassy is established, say we have an embassy in Great Britain, at that embassy, the laws that govern what goes on in that piece of property are the laws of the United States, not the laws of Great Britain. When an ambassador travels, he travels still under the right and authority of his host country. So when it says that you are an ambassador for Christ, who is the king of the kingdom we were transferred into, what does that mean? It means that wherever you go, you stand in the kingdom of God. And the the truths that govern your life are not the truths of the world that you live in, but the truths of the God whom you serve. God is very particular about the words that he uses to describe our situation. And they're all good. Well, let's look at Deuteronomy 8.18. Let's start looking at the instructions about being successful. It says, You shall remember the Lord your God, For it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. God gives you the power to get wealth. And again, you could translate that as success. He does this that that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. So what is God talking about when he talks about prosperity, when he talks about wealth, when he talks about success? Are these promises, is God promising that we're all going to be as rich as Bill Gates? Is that what God is promising? No, God kind of shows us and instructs us what he's talking about with wealth and prosperity. And take a look at Proverbs chapter 30. We're going to look at a number of verses from Proverbs, both this week and next week, because Proverbs has a lot of practical wisdom on life, including financial life. And in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8, it says, this is a prayer, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. So, within the framework of that verse, there is a lot of latitude for personal needs and desires, right? And God wants you blessed. He wants you to be able to enjoy life. He wants you to be able to pursue his will. And he will provide all that you need in order to be able to accomplish that. God gives us the power to gain wealth. He has given us the power to succeed. But if we don't utilize it, we won't experience it. Giving somebody the power, giving somebody the authority is not the same as those people exercising that power and authority. I want us to exercise it. We've got it. I want to utilize it. And when it comes to the power to get wealth, when it comes to financial prosperity, life in the physical realm, there are really only three principles that God has that govern this. Now, there's lots of verses that talk about it, but they basically boil down to three principles. To work heartily, to spend wisely, and to give generously. 
Pretty much all of God's wisdom in the financial realm is going to work into one or the other of these three. And Christians believe lies about all three of these areas. And when you believe a lie about something, you act and behave in accordance with what you believe, which unfortunately at this point is a lie for many people. The devil does not want you to succeed. And the kingdom of this world is designed to provide you with advice that will prevent you from succeeding. So let's just take a quick look at these three points. First, we are to work heartily. It says work heartily as unto the Lord. That means you work as though Jesus Christ is the one who signs your paycheck. And working heartily is not the same as working hard. Working hard refers to your effort. Working heartily refers to your attitude. And God wants us to have an attitude in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and that he's the one that we're working to. I have heard many believers over the years, you know, complain about their jobs. My boss is a jerk. Actually, they usually use more colorful language than that. I'll leave it to your imagination as to what they might say about their boss. My boss is a jerk. I'm only going to work for him. I'm just going to give him the bare minimum, just what I need to keep from getting fired. I am not denying that your boss may be a jerk. What I am saying is, God still says, work heartily is unto the Lord. And he said that when a lot of the Roman Empire was slaves. So if a slave can work heartily as unto the Lord, those of us who are employed and can go elsewhere can do that as well. Second point is to spend wisely. This is often called stewardship. A lot of people don't understand what the word stewardship means. It means to spend wisely. How's that? Watch how you spend and save your money and how you use and care for your belongings. That's what spending and stewardship is about. Again, all the world wants is to part you with your money because the devil is out to steal, kill, and destroy. And you know what? The, you know how the devil gets people to do this? He sells them faulty logic. When you look at commercials, most commercials are aimed at, you deserve this. You deserve a break today? Who's that, McDonald's? Burger King? One of those guys. The world, you deserve this. Yeah, I deserve this. I need this. God promises to meet my need. I'm going to go out and get this. And we get this to spend foolishly. God wants you to be blessed, and he has got wisdom for you. I've seen people, I'm not going to save any money for a car. Nope, God says he's going to meet my needs. When I need a car, he's going to meet that need. Well... I've seen believers say that. And you know who meets their need when they need a car? The bank. God also talks about saving in his word. But you see, the devil gets people poor by selling them faulty logic. God's word has great logic, and he teaches us. Going God's way is going to require adjustments on our part in our lives. But the payoff The blessings are enormous. And the third point, give generously. Honor God and give generously. And that's what I'm going to really cover for the rest of this morning and next week. Fear keeps people from trying God out on his promises. And therefore, fear is keeping people from receiving his blessings. 
Here's what people say. I can't see how what I have will even cover my needs. Therefore, I have nothing to honor God with. And I'm sure God understands this. Well, actually, he does, but he understands that it's foolish. He understands that it's foolish. This kind of talk, when people talk like this, it sounds reasonable. And it is reasonable. What it's not is spiritual. And that's what we want to go after. What is spiritual? There is a way that seems right to a man. Giving my boss the bare minimum because he's a jerk. That seems right to people. That seems just to people. It doesn't seem right to God. He still says work heartily. You know, fear plays a huge role in how we approach our finances. In fact, most financial advice is based on fear. I know that because I'm 65, and I get all kinds of mail from my new friends who want to sell me uh, products because I can't possibly have enough money to retire. And they want to motivate me with fear. Fear is what the devil uses to get people moving. And fear does get people moving. I guarantee you, fear gets people moving. But God doesn't use fear to get people moving. God uses truth with a healthy dose of love to get people moving. So, first of all, what is fear? Well, what am I talking about when I'm talking about fear? Fear is an intense desire to escape from a perceived threat. I guess I could say a real or perceived threat. It could be either way. For fear to be legitimate, the object of your fear has to be both present and powerful. If it is not both present and powerful, then your fear is irrational. Let's take trains. Let's say you got a flat tire on the railroad tracks, and you hear the horn, and you see the single headlight going down the, the track the other way. That fear is legitimate. Why? Because the object of your fear, the train, is powerful and present. That's a legitimate fear. But what if you're sitting out on your deck last night, because it finally got cooler, you're sitting out on your deck last night and you hear a train whistle in the distance and you start sweating. That is an irrational fear. Are trains powerful? Yes. Are they present? Not on my deck. For many people, the object of their fear is financial anxiety. That is the object of their fear. That's what they're staring down. And financial problems may appear present and powerful to you. But you've got to remember, you are not alone. You have God along with you. These issues that face us, and I don't care if they're health issues, financial issues, family issues, I don't care what your issue is, it doesn't intimidate God. God is not intimidated by my problems. When you pray to God, the answer is never going to be, i got to think about that, let me get back to you. God will never say that. He already understands. The truth sets us free. And one of the things truth will set you free from is fear, including fear about your financial life. But truth only sets you free if you first know it 
and then believe it. Sometimes people know the truth, but their fear keeps them from applying that truth. And their fear is based on a lie. It may be a reasonable lie that the world has told them, but it's still a lie. Finances probably cause more anxiety in this country than anything else, which is so odd. It is so odd. Many years ago, my dad showed me a website about, you know, the wealthiest people in the world. And it was like, you could plug in anything. Plug in your salary, and it'll tell you where your salary is and what percentage you are in the world. One thing that is remarkable, if you earn $32,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of people on earth. You know what that means? If you earn $32,000 in a year, there are like 9 billion people worse off than you. But that's a perspective that the devil doesn't want you to understand because he doesn't want you thankful for anything. He wants you anxious about things. And of course, when it comes to the things in this world, there's always going to be somebody richer, better looking, nicer car, whatever, more famous, you name it. But just to put it in perspective, the world batters us with fear and anxiety about our finances. But God is more powerful than anything you are stating. And you may have lived your whole life outside of his word as far as your financial life is concerned. You can start today. God is great about the reset button. Let's take a look about Proverbs 11 24. Let's give some kingdom truth about giving and receiving. And this is kingdom truth that goes against what the world teaches. In fact, it's the opposite of the world, what the world teaches. It says in Proverbs 11.24. I know, I said Proverbs. But it's Proverbs 11.24 that I'm looking for. Is that in your uh, outline, hon? You can look. I can read it to people. How's that? Proverbs 11.24. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. That's kingdom wisdom. That's what God promises. And we're going to concentrate on giving and receiving, honoring God by giving generously. And that is because it's probably the least understood and applied. And... We're going to begin in Proverbs chapter 3, and we're going to look at verse 5. And what I'm sharing with you, this is not simply, for me anyway, it is not the theory of financial freedom and victory. It is the practice of it. Susan and I have been applying this principle of giving and receiving since we were 17. So what's that? 48 years, more or less. Somebody's going to say, no, Bob, it's not that. So basically 48 years, we've been applying this. And our lives have been abundantly blessed. You can't figure out my life by looking at the papers. It just doesn't work. It only works if the paper you're looking at has God's word written on it. These papers, it, it makes sense with. Because God's wisdom is better than the world's wisdom. Well, let's look at Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord. And that's a pretty, how many like to trust in the Lord? Okay, good. It was, you know, it's not, we, don't have to, we don't have to sell people on that. But it says, 
with all your heart. Ah. You know, most of us Christians, we, we trust God, we trust in the Lord with some of my heart. We grow more in the, world, in the Word with much of my heart. But with all of my heart? Not always. And sometimes the last place people trust in God is with their finances. But it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. What seems reasonable to you. What seems logical to you. Trust in the Lord instead of that. Even if what the Lord says looks strange to you, like Noah, build a boat. Uh, Don't go to the seashore, by the way. Just build it right here in the middle of dry land. That doesn't sound reasonable, does it? I mean, building a boat's fine. Even building a big boat's okay. But right here in the middle of dry land? Worked out pretty well for Noah, though. It says, be not wise in your own eyes. Again, that is the wisdom of this world. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Okay, this is not a teaching on healing, but let me just go on the side there. When we forsake evil and live God's way, it brings health to our bodies. How? I have no idea. But that's a promise that God makes. So how can my thought life and my behavior affect my health? Well, God knows, and he knows what's going to make us the healthiest. Okay, back to what I want to talk about, verse 8, or verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth, which is what you already have, and with the first fruits of all your produce or income. If you do that, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And again, in this section, notice the contrast. Trusting God, wise in your own eyes. Following the wisdom of this world, following God's ways. Now in Proverbs, and I want to say this up front, giving is not an investment program. Okay? That's not what it is. What does God call it? Honoring Him. Giving is a way that we honor God and acknowledge that all is actually from him. This is why it's important that you understand how you look at your possessions. I mean, I have never seen a hearse with roof racks or hauling a U-Haul. You don't bring it with you. How do you view your possessions? The biblical way to view your possessions is as stewardship, that you have the opportunity to take care of that which God has blessed you with in this life. But let's take a look at 1 Chronicles 29. This is a great section. David is talking here, King David. And David, along with all the kingdom of Israel, had pooled their resources, had honored God, had given above and beyond so that they could build the temple. And look at what David says. He doesn't go and brag at, look at what all us great Israelites have done to build you a house, God. He has a very different attitude. He has a kingdom of God kind of attitude. He says in verse 13, And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? That's what they were doing. For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. 
All things come from you, and of your own we have given you. That is just that is how we are to view our resources. It all comes from God. The reason I can honor God is because he has blessed me. Let's look at how this appeared in the life of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Genesis 26, 12. Then Isaac sowed in the land. Did Isaac do something? He sowed. And received in the same year a hundredfold. That's a pretty nice return, isn't it? And the Lord blessed him. The blessing of God as we keep his word will far exceed anything the world could promise you. Isaac sowed and God blessed. God gives us the power to get wealth, but we need to include him and we need to cooperate. If Isaac had not sowed, would Isaac have reaped? No. He had a part to play. But who had the big part? God did. We're not farmers, except, of course, Sharon Harris. She's not here this morning, but she's a farmer. But for us, giving financially is one of the ways that we sow today, one of the ways that we honor God. Let's look more at God's blessings. Again, we'll go to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 22. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. I think Isaac must have figured that out a hundredfold. And he adds no sorrow with it. I think that's interesting. The idea that the blessing of the Lord makes rich is not, you know, really a stretch for us to understand. But he adds no sorrow with it. I grew up in a community that had an awful lot of rich people in it, many of whom had great sorrow along with it and great misery along with it. When God blesses us, we can enjoy that blessing without sorrow. And, you know, when God talks about sowing or giving, he always talks about receiving as well. The world just talks about giving and obligation. And don't you feel bad. Let's show the picture of the little puppy. Feel bad, so you give. God always talks about giving and receiving, and he talks about it in terms of honoring him. So we're going to look at one way that this is covered in God's word, and that's called the tithe. Now, tithe is an old English word, which means tenth, a tenth part. Most modern translations don't use the word tithe. They use the word tenth part. But you can go either way. A tithe is honoring God with a tenth part of your income. That's what a tithe is talking about. And it's, the tithe is often misunderstood. And one of the reasons that it's misunderstood is because people view it as something that is a part of the law and that we are not in the law, we are the church. How does the tithe, and giving in general for that matter, apply to the church? What's the church supposed to do with these things? One, th- one thing I want you to realize is the tithe came before the law. As a matter of fact, the tithe was about 400 years before Moses was a baby on the Nile River. The tithe was the way God first directed Abraham to honor him for a great victory that he had received. Abraham, if you don't know this, he is the father of all the Jews. That's why it says, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All the Jews trace their lineage back to Abraham. And he is a man second only to Jesus Christ 
when it comes to taking God at his word. Abraham is called the man of faith or the man of believing. He is called a friend of God. He is called the father of all those who believe. Those are pretty nice descriptions. How would you like that chiseled on your tombstone? That's pretty good. And God's the one chiseling all that stuff. Abraham is the gold standard of what it looks like to believe God. He is surpassed only by Jesus Christ. But because he is the man of faith, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When Abraham is called the man of faith, that means he is a man who is carrying out God's instructions. That's what it means to be a man of faith. And I want to look at something here. See, why don't you show that slide on, uh, yeah, here we go. I went, when on Pentecost I did this slide. Christian Sass prepared it, and I've used it several times since then. At Pentecost, some things changed, some things ended, and some things new got started. The tithe is something that changed. Or actually, you might even look at it, the, the tithe returned back to what it was originally, which is what we're going to see here in Genesis chapter 14. Because after Jesus Christ, rather than be a legal obligation, which is what it was to the Jews, it returned to a free will response for God's blessings. And the first instance of the tithe is in the life of Abraham, the man of faith. And here's the setup. Abraham had a nephew. His name was Lot. And he went and lived in Sodom. Probably not the best real estate investment, but that's where he went to live. And at one time, while he was living in Sodom, kings, other kings, which really meant leaders of towns, not kings like the king of Great Britain, but the king of a town, Several kings came over, they attacked Sodom, and they carried away all the property and the people as slaves. One of the people they carried away was Lot. This did not sit well with Abram or Abraham. Let's look at verse 14 of Genesis 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Abraham was very rich, it says in Genesis chapter 13. He had a small personal militia of 318 trained men. Not 318 warm bodies. 318 trained men that he took out to retrieve his nephew. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hoboth, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and he also brought back his kinsman, Lot, with his possessions, and the women and the people. This is a great victory. After his return from the defeat of Chelo Laamer. People sometimes wonder how I know how to pronounce these Old Testament words. I don't. But since you don't either, what are you going to say? <laughs> After the return of the defeat of this guy and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, better known today as Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. And here's something about Melchizedek. He was a priest of the God Most High. That's who Melchizedek represented. 
And he blessed. Melchizedek blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high. And we know what happens when God blesses you. Possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth or a tithe of everything. The tithe was Abram's response for the blessings of the victory that God had just given him. And because Abraham is the man of faith, God is the one who prompted him to do this. His grandson Jacob obviously learned a thing or two from his grandpa because he also honored God with the tithe. Look at Genesis 28. In verse 20 it says, Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in the way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Of all you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. What do we learn from Abraham and Jacob about the tithe? Well, we learned that it was a free will response to honor God for what he had done. That's what it's talking about. Jacob hit it when he said, all that you have given me, I will give you a tithe. He recognized, which most people today don't, that all that we can enjoy, the very ability we have to enjoy breath comes from God. So that when we tithe, when we give him, we are honoring him back with just what he has given to us. And there's more to it than that. You see, the tithe wasn't just Abraham honored God. God blessed back Abraham. It's kind of like this virtuous cycle. God blesses, Abraham honors, God blesses more, Abraham honors again. That's how it works with God. Now, the tithe which Abraham and Jacob gave by free will, was later made a part of the law of Moses. And at that time, it became an obligation to the Jews. But Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law. And what the tithe is today, it is still a principle of free will giving that God honors and blesses back. And Actually, as we'll see next week, God blesses and honors all giving, but he has made some remarkable promises about the tithe. And we're going to read about them in Malachi chapter 3. So the tithe today has once again been restored to a way that we can choose to freely honor God, a means to honor God and to include him in your life. And if you're going to include God in your life, that involves faith. Abraham was a man of faith. And many people spell faith R-I-S-K. Because whenever you're going to believe God, you're going to have to walk out on a promise. And to the world, that seems very risky. But God is way bigger than the world. And, you know, one of the great things about the age of grace that we live in today, it's that the requirements of the law ended. But the blessings of God's word still remained in force. That's the difference. Now let's go to Malachi chapter 3. This is the last book in the Old Testament. And it says in verse 10, 
Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test. It's an interesting thing that God is saying here. He's stating his word, and he tells the, he tells the Jews, put me to the test. Call my bluff. See if I'm telling you the truth. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. That's a pretty good blessing. At this point, when God makes this statement and promise, the Jews had been living just like they had with Haggai a couple of books earlier. They had been living with bags and wallets that had holes in them. And what does God say? He says, put me to the test. Test me on my promise. And that's my encouragement to you about this. I have been in ministry for almost 50 years. And in all that time, I have seen over and over that people who choose to tithe have far fewer problems than people who don't make that choice. And I'm not just talking about financial issues. I'm talking about life in general. And we're going to see how the promises of the tithe get even better. Here's what God is saying. Remember, he said, put me to the test. He goes, I will rebuke the devourer for you, which basically means I will restrain the adversary from interfering with your life. Wouldn't that be nice to restrain the adversary? There's no other place that has this kind of a promise to it. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. That's what your life should be like. People should look at you and be in awe at the blessings that you enjoy. That's what God wants. But many times they look at Christians and Christian lives are no different than non-Christian lives. Why is that? Because many Christians are still following the wisdom of this world so they get the same results as this world. Follow the wisdom of God, you get better results. If you want an exciting Christian life, take God up and test him on the tithe. See if he's telling the truth or if God is just blowing smoke. And you know what? If God's blowing smoke, go back to whatever wisdom you want. But you're not going to find that God is blowing smoke. Now, if you're going to do this, any of these, work heartily, spend wisely, give generously, it's going to require an adjustment in your life. Faith involves risk and a willingness to adjust our life and priorities to match God's. But the blessings are enormous. Let's take God up on this challenge. I want to close in Romans 10, verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. That's a promise from God's word. Take God up on his promise of giving generously. Take God up on his promises with the tithe. You will not be disappointed. You will see the exact promises that he has made in his word. Now, so as you've seen, this is just part one, but kingdom finances are definitely different than worldly finances. And here's the major difference. They're better. Very much better. And next week, we're going to look at further promises that God has made about giving and receiving in the New Testament. 
And here's a spoiler work uh, alert. It gets better still. So why don't you all stand and we'll pray together, okay? Father God, we just are here with our hands open before you, looking to receive your blessing. We thank you, God, that you have put yourself forward to love us, to include us in your family, to place us in the kingdom of your son. And you've made commitments to bless us, God. And we look for those blessings and we want to receive them as we walk with you. So I ask for your blessing upon each of us in this room today in whatever capacity we need it. Physically, financially, emotionally, within our jobs, within our families. I ask you to bless us as you have promised in your word. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you guys. You're the best.